Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And i got to tell you, I'm very excited to have this gentleman on my show. Uh, the wonderful Mark Riccadonna was doing my uh, RBN television show here in South Jersey called uh, Cooper Talk Local. And he said he was friends with my guest. And I said, I want to have that guy on my show because he's, uh, he's the host of Tell Me Everything on Sirius. He's an actor. He's a comic. He's a political commentary. He's a host. He's done it all. And he's good at all of them. And it's John Fogelsang. How you doing, John? Hello, Steve. Thanks for having me and uh, letting me drag your show down to, to my level. I appreciate it. If, if you're only as hip as your guests, uh, we'll be driving the millennials away together. So thank you. So you were just, what were you doing in L.A.? I got to ask you, because I, I lived in L.A. for a long time, and I moved back six years ago. I live outside Philadelphia. I know you go back and forth. What were you in L.A. for, and, and have you had an, have you noticed a difference? Has it changed as much people have said it has? Well, I lived in L.A. for uh, a number of years, and then I moved back to New York uh, a few years back when my when my dad got sick. Um, but I still go there. I still, you know, I still vote there, um, and I still work there. So I was in L.A. for a month, uh, partially for vacation. Uh, I have a, uh, our, our child was about to start middle school, so my, my wife uh, had this idea that we would go out for a month and work in L.A. for a couple of weeks and try to see if we could work and do our jobs there which is easy for me because Sirius XM has a great studios in Hollywood. And, um, and she worked remotely. And then uh, a couple of weeks of just vacation with our horrible child. So nothing really all that interesting, but it was sort of like putting our feet in the water now that we're a miserable couple with a child and not a happy, carefree partying couple in L.A. Um, so we were testing it out to see how it would be if we wanted to move back with, with our, our youngling. And uh, so, um, but it has changed. Yeah, uh, it, of course it has. I mean, obviously everything's changed post-COVID. Every time you go back, it's like, oh, that restaurant's gone, that store's gone. Um, and yeah, the, the uh, homelessness situation in Santa Monica and Venice is undeniably uh, worse than I have seen. It's been bad for a long time. Santa Monica has been called the home of the homeless for years. But like the second day I was there, I, I, I saw 11 cops, 11 Counting the plane clothes, 11 cops arresting one shirtless, young, unarmed guy on a bench outside the library. And I thought, well, there it is. You know, um, the opioid crisis has fueled all this addiction, uh, homelessness, crime, families being broken up. And the Supreme Court's going to protect or, you know, the, the government's going to protect the Sackler family and the people who were the drug dealers that pushed these opioids and bribed doctors to overprescribe them. But the victims of the opioid crisis, the actual addicts, they're they're getting pounced while unarmed by 11 cops at once. So, you know, um, L.A. is like New York. It's always getting better. It's always getting worse. But the homelessness situation really, really is worse. And people want to point fingers, you know, uh, but I, I kind of feel like we attack the symptoms and not the root problems. Homelessness is a symptom of a greater problem. Oh, I agree with you. And the thing about homelessness in L.A. is people, you know, people don't understand what rent is. I mean, I had a townhouse in Burbank and I moved six years ago and I think my rent has doubled where it was. And people just can't afford that. I mean, I know a guy who's a TV writer and he's on a TV show and he's like, I, it's not easy for me to live. So L.A., it's everything's so expensive. I think that really hurts the people who live there because you can't find a place to stay. Yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. And, you know, and, and of course, many can't find a decent job they like or many find it. It's, it can be a very lonely town, too. You know, I, 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 I learned to love L.A., but it took a while. But it's a great town and it's a great place to do comedy. And um, 
And it was really good to go out there and do our SiriusXM show during the strike and have actors and comedians and on. We had Ron Perlman came by one day, and uh, and so it was nice to go and actually cover the strike from Hollywood. The strike, yeah, I have a lot of actors on this show, and people don't get the impact of the strike, and people don't understand. You know, everyone thinks actors make all this money, but there's so many guys. I know people who've had TV shows that haven't worked for a year and a half, and it's really it's a crazy time for the actors because they're getting screwed yeah. over. All the time. I mean, I always say being an actor, I mean, acting is great. Being an actor is incredibly difficult. So acting, when did you want to get into acting? I know you went to school for acting. What were you like as a kid? Were you, were you one of these kids who wanted to get into theater or wanted to do comedy? Were you an athlete? I mean, what was your focus as junior high, high school when we really start deciding what we're going to do? Um, well, for me, I had a, I had a kind of a strange upbringing. Um, my, my parents were both ex-clergy. Uh, my mother had been a nun for 16 years, um, from the South, but she had been living in Africa, working with lepers in the jungles of Malawi, uh, as a nun nurse, um, the convent put her through nursing school. My father was a Franciscan brother who taught Catholic, uh, boys in Brooklyn history. So, um, I, I was born the first child of two people who would, both promised God I would never happen, and two people who uh, had had vows of poverty until their mid-30s. So um, growing up, I plus half Southern, half Brooklyn, I was just, my childhood was designed that I would never be able to click with anybody. Uh, we were the most religious kids on the block, and yet we were also the only kids whose parents voted against Reagan on the block. It was very good. In a couple of years when I read the Bible, I'm like, oh, yeah, you, uh, you, how can you be a Republican and follow Jesus? It doesn't make sense. At the time, it was very confusing. And my first paid acting gig was when I was 11 years old in a regional theater production of A Christmas Carol on Long Island. And I was paid like $5 a performance for like 30 shows <laughs> And it was the most incredible thing I'd ever experienced at age 11. And after that, I was done with playing Atari. I was done with my, my, my peers, and I spent all my free time uh, working in a theater. Anything I could do with this theater company, I, any small roles uh, from, from the dead bodies in Arsenic and Old Lace to uh, you know um, the walk-on officer and the misanthrope, stage crew, lighting, sound, ushering. I just spent my whole life uh, growing up around theater. I was in a production of Hamlet when I was 12 and got to memorize Hamlet, and that was like making the world go into color for me. Um, and then, you know, as, I, as a child, I wanted to be an actor because uh, I didn't want to be me. And over many years and doing all kinds of, of, of roles, I, and then getting more into stand-up, I, I began to think, no, that's not how, you don't become an actor to avoid being you. You become an actor to learn who you actually are and who you are not. And that was very valuable for me. But I, I also had a lot of other things I wanted to do. So, you know, I, I, I did stand up and I've done all kinds of TV hosting work over the years. And then uh, with SiriusXM, it's been a great gig because as I've become a dad and travel around the country touring, it's wonderful to have a radio show that I can do with politicians, with authors, with comics, with celebrities, but, you know, uh, do it from anywhere. So in the era of COVID, I've done a lot of radio shows in a lot of hotel rooms. Um, but I was always just about 
you know, trying to have the most eclectic career I could possibly have. Now, what was your path to stand-up? When did you start? I start. I did stand-up on the road from 88 to 95. I was out of the Philadelphia area. We had great comments. Wow. We had Adam McKay. We had Paul Tompkins. You know, we always used to hang out at Nick's Roast Beef on South Street. And uh, we we just started doing comedy. I, I got out of college and I wanted to do it. So I started doing it. And you know how it is. It's a grind. You hit the stage. You hit the stage. When did you, at what point of your career, because you were already acting, did you decide, I want to do stand-up? The first time I saw George Carlin perform live. That was it. That was my Paul on the road to Damascus moment. Um, I had just transferred at New York University from the Circle in the Square Theater School to the School of Film and Television. And, um, and some friends of mine invited me out to go see Carlin. And, you know, I, I liked Carlin. I grew up with him like everybody else in the 80s and 70s. And I knew all of his, you know, dirty stuff. But this was during the first Persian Gulf War, after 1991, the popular war, when we sent troops to restore the dictator of Kuwait. And um, after telling the dictator of Iraq it was okay to invade Kuwait, and then we sent troops to restore that dictator. So it was a very popular war. It had 93% approval, and um, I was appalled by it. I mean, Kuwait's a country where women are property. The whole thing was a setup. Whitney Houston lip-synced the national anthem in a stadium and released it as a single. It was a really scary time when they had the Welcome Home Heroes Parade for the troops who had served for a couple of days in Kuwait. There was a group of clergy that were having a, a, a silent prayer vigil on the sidewalk, and the crowd surrounded these people that were praying and began chanting, asshole, asshole, asshole at them. like. You don't know how crazy people went with the first popular war uh, less than 20 years after Vietnam. George Bush Sr. actually said, we have exercised the ghosts of Vietnam, which is still one of the ugliest things I ever heard a president say. And Carlin, this was the Jammin' in New York tour. That's the album. Carlin walks on stage at this time of incredible jingoism. And Carlin begins his show with an excoriation of the entire Iraq war, how evil it all was, Bush and Colin Powell and Dick Cheney, Bush Sr., tears them apart. And I couldn't believe, and the crowd was laughing. And I knew most people in that crowd hadn't opposed that war. But he was so funny that he made a crowd of people who had supported that unholy, ungodly war laugh at his jokes about how evil that war was. And it was the first time I understood the power of what comedy could do socially. You know, Billy Wilder said, if you're going to tell people the truth, make it funny or they'll kill you. And so, it, it, but for me also, it was the first time an entertainer or a comedian had ever made me feel less alone in the world. And it changed my life. And um, to this day, that, that's, that's the album where George Carlin said he stopped being a comedian and became an essayist. And you can listen to all of his stuff, but from Jammin' in New York, followed by Back in Town, his entire comedy style changes, like in his late 50s, and it's just incredible. So where do you go then? You know, you're in New York. I mean, it's not like it's not like it's just easy to get on stage in New York. It's not like you just go to catch. I mean, catch was open probably then. You go, hey, you know, Louis Brand to put me on stage or go to the comic strip. You just can't get on. Where did you start? I know Louis well. Where did you start playing New York? I played catch in New York the last night they were open. I was one of the last comedians. I, I auditioned that day. They passed me, and they let me do a set the night they closed the club down. 
So that was my one time playing there. What was that like as a young comic? Because that's, I mean, I remember I auditioned for Lewis. I got on once or twice. You know, I was I was in North Jersey. But what was that like for you as a comic? Because Catch was legendary. I mean, those clubs were legendary. The people that went through yep. them, the old improv. What was that like for you? I mean, you finally pass. They put you on and you go, oh, shit. <laughs> I, I can't go back. But it must have been a great feeling. Yeah. Just exhilaration. I mean, I wish I wish I could have the confidence of an early 20s white guy again. You know, uh, and, and I was driven by adrenaline and uh, and I was in love with everything. I was in love with it. I had been working on an office job for four years running a dorm for NYU. And it was so, so soul deadening running a dorm. I mean, you know, I was in my early 20s at this point, out of college, but still in college. And uh, it just was a glorious escape. And it was I was writing constantly and I was doing just the silliest stuff possible. And um and it, and it went well. I, I, you know, I, 18 months after my first open mic, I was able to quit my, my office job. So that was great for me. Uh, and it's a, it's a period in life that I always wish I could get back to because I just, I was so hungry to get on any stage. And if I thought I was going to get booed, I didn't care. I was so happy to finally be doing something creative with my life that that took away any kind of fear or pain or, uh, or, you know, embarrassment. Now, what was your material like in your early stage? Because, I mean, I only get on stage once in a while now, and my act's completely different. And, you know, it's yeah. as we gravitate. I mean, I'm, I'm 59 now. When I started when I was 25, and I've been in and out of the business on and off. But my act's changed, and I don't, I don't get as uptight anymore because you're not depending on it. It's not like, oh, my God, if I get fired from this gig, I'm going to sit here and, and not be able to pay my rent. But right. wh- what is... How has your act changed? Because you're more known as a political comedian now. Now, in the beginning, yeah. were you political? Or was that something in your mind that you said, eventually, I'm going to become political? When did the transformation take place? Well, I, I always wanted to be political. Like, I loved Carlin. My dad was very political. My dad was, you know, very, very Catholic and very, very liberal. My dad had on his wall a collage portrait of uh, Gandhi, Dorothy Day, and uh, Martin Luther King. And that was sort of like the holy trinity in our house growing up. Um, you know, my dad gave me my copy of Autobiography of Malcolm X. My father was very conservative socially. He, he certainly dressed like a Republican. Um, he's not hip in the slightest, uh, you know, but, but very, very abnormally progressive politically. And I, I always wanted to, but in the beginning, I just wanted to do smart, silly stuff. I wanted to just be like Python or Mr. Show and just do his goofy stuff as I, I used to do a, uh, a very loud uh, Shakespearean rap play um, called Taming of the Ho. Uh, I, uh, books on tape were becoming big, so I used to do, um, just announce what some of the new books on tape were, uh, and I would just do like, you know, um, Cujo, read by Harvey Firestein, or Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, read by Keith Richards, or uh, Nine and a Half Weeks, read by Gilbert Gottfried. Um, just a lot of, lot of goofy stuff. It wasn't until later that I started trying to be political, and then um, when I moved to L.A., I was doing Bill Maher's show a lot. And my one night they had me debate Jerry Falwell. And after that, my mother, for the first time, gave me permission to publicly talk about their past. When I was a kid, we were not allowed to tell other kids that our parents had been a, a brother and a sister, essentially. Uh, I wasn't, we just weren't supposed to let anyone know. And when my mother finally gave me permission to talk about her past on stage, it opened up just this wellspring of, of material and passion in me about right-wing Christianity. You know, 
uh, about the fundamentalism, about these haters. And, um, and I don't claim to be a great Christian. I think my parents were. But I get really pissed off seeing uh, people trying to distort the character of Jesus to justify being shitty to gay people or trans children or migrants seeking legal asylum. I, I, I sort of over the years have become all about the separation of church and hate. And it was really the big transition for me was getting away from trying to please the audience to talking about the stuff I was passionate about and making sure it was funny. Now, that was the big shift for me. what is it like now? Because political comedy, you know, Will Durst was known as a political comic back in the day. And, great, great comic. And great Jimmy comic. Tingle. And there was different comics that were political. Great comic. And the crowd could go in with an open mind, okay? I always think about this, how politics is now. When I lived in L.A., I had a friend who was very left and a friend who was very right. And we would go back to my place and party up and bullshit. And they would talk till 3 in the morning and they'd debate. No one would be calling each other names. And it was, for me, it was invigorating because I was learning. And at the end, you know, they wouldn't agree, but they concede a little bit. But now, with the way the landscape of the country is, you know, with social media and anywhere, what is it like when you do political comedy, because I know when you do like the sexy liberal tour, you're going to have liberals come, but you know there are those assholes who are sitting there going, oh, I'm, I'm a trumper, I'm going to go mess with this guy's act, and I'm sure you've run into that, but what is it like for you now, because there is division, and, and, it's, and it's sad for comics, because before you could just speak what you thought, and you wouldn't get something thrown at you, or, or, or catcalled, yeah. so what is it like for you now on stage, do you run into problems sometimes, or do you have a crowd that really comes to see you? Uh, both. I mean, you know, like you mentioned the sexy liberal tour, that's that tour is a blast because we play like really big rooms. We get big celebrities to join us on stage. And, you know, going out there that it's going to be, you know, a, a, a crowd that is really receptive to a certain kind of political material. So you could be lazy and just slum it, of course, and just get applause breaks instead of being funny. Um, but also, you know, for a lot of a lot of progressives in this country were scared to have an Obama sticker on their car when they went to their job or their church. And for a couple thousand people to be in a room in the Midwest and realize, oh, my God, everyone out here is uh, is also, you know, uh, thinks women should be allowed to control their own destinies. What a crazy concept. And so the joy in the room is so great that it's just like a party when you walk on stage. But I mean, I've had I've had an experience two years ago of uh, I was doing a, a, a piano bar in, in Times Square, a piano bar essentially a gay club. And I had some MAGA people that came in and sat in a table. And I was literally getting, I was, I was literally doing Trump Pence material and I was getting heckled by right wing MAGAs in a gay bar. That's gentrification. Okay. That's when we talk about gentrification. That's what it is. But you know, years ago, I mean, and you mentioned Durst, he's in San Francisco. So he has a bit of an advantage. Jimmy Tingles in Boston, but Jimmy's always done a very good job of taking on both sides. Doesn't hide, you know, I believe in, you got to be fair and biased. Don't pretend you're middle of the road when you're not, but also be fair. After 9-11, I went on the road as a, as a feature act with Daryl Hammond, who I loved and I, I grew up liking him. And, and when I was a kid, he was like before he was on SNL, he was one of my favorite comics in the New York clubs. And Daryl, you know, does these impressions and he's very, very crowd friendly. But this is after 9-11. Daryl encouraged me to go out there and be as anti-Bush and anti-Cheney as possible, to be as political as I could. It's the opposite of Carlin. Carlin would have Dennis go on stage and do song parodies and be very mainstream. And then George would come out all fire. 
Daryl wanted me to go out there and <laughs> scream bloody murder about Bush and Cheney and rake them over the coals. And then he would come out and reunite the whole room. And it was fascinating to see because I would I would get some hate as the opener. And then Daryl would come out and win the whole room back. But what it taught me was conservative people, they just don't want to feel like they're being singled out. They just don't want to feel like you're, you know, Mr. Coastal Elite making fun of just them. And I came to realize if I made fun of the Clintons and Al Gore first and they knew they weren't being singled out, if I made some Democratic jokes first, they would laugh at jokes about Bush and Cheney. They wouldn't feel like they were attacked. So, you know, it just reinforced the, the I mean, the enemy of political comedy is, is preachiness. It, it's got to be funny first, informative second and preachy last. And if you're going for funny first, you can be as opinionated as you want because uh, people aren't going to feel like they're being directly attacked. And I don't want to make people feel that way. You pay money to go and buy two drinks. I'm not here to make you feel bad in front of your date. Um, but I will make fun of, you know, the people you vote for. And uh, and I'll do it in such a way that you won't feel attacked. Well, I think that's the a intellectual person will understand that. Unfortunately, there's not as many intellectual people as with thought it was, you know, lately you run into people. You just get surprised. Now, your career, you know, besides comic, you were an actor for a while. You still act, but what drove you to, what, you went to L.A. to start acting. You don't act as much. What happened? Did you want to pull away from acting or is just other things arose? Because you, you got killed on CSI. I mean, you, you did some shows. You were in Providence. You were on a bunch of stuff. Yeah. I was on, I was on Providence twice. I, I was on like one season and then a couple of years later I came I came back and had just done a film and I had red hair and a mustache and they they didn't recognize me. So I'm actually on that show two different seasons as two totally different characters with two different hair colors. Um I went out to LA not to act but to do uh, America's funniest home videos. You know, my my agents and managers pushed me to to do it. And I had never watched the show. And I blew off the audition, and they called and yelled at me and said, the lady's delaying her flight. Go read for her. And I read for her, and they flew me out to L.A. to audition, and I said, I'm all wrong for this. And they cast me in it. Um, and, you know, that was what brought me out there. But then I began just auditioning all the time. And, you know, it's um, it's it wasn't really that anything took me out of it. I still do it, but I wound up getting a lot more work as a, as a TV host. The problem with that was a lot of the hosting work they – they wanted what I call a prompter monkey. They wanted someone who could just smile and be white and be unthreatening and read a prompter. And I already looked like a, a weatherman from Omaha. So, um, you know, that was a bit of a, a push pull for me. And I learned that my definition of success was very different than um, my agent's definition of success. Well, what is your definition of success? Doing something you enjoy and making a living at it. So, so the hosting and the radio show, how did that all come about? Because, you know, you said politically incorrect. So you were getting known as a political commentator, which, you know, you're on different TV shows. But when did the when did the serious show come about? Because, you know, it's a great show and you've had so many amazing guests. And, and the funny thing is, you, I mean, you look at the list and I mean, so many people, but then. People made the staples. Like people don't even sit there and go, "Oh my God!" I look at your list and you're like, "They're just people who That's are just choice, man." That's a choice. But very so, excited. Yeah. When when did when did this all start happening? When you started hosting to a point where you could do an interview, and then I also want to know how did you learn to interview? Because I've done close to a thousand of these, and I learn every day. And I think we're always learning. I think that's just like stand up. But when did you start? deciding i really want to interview people because you had the hosting work you had to sit down on different shows but when did the 
interviewing pop into your head? Um, honestly, I, I my first TV job was uh, working for VH1, and um, as a VJ, they hired me to be their funny guy. But I wound up being like the fill-in VJ and you know in, intro Hootie and the Blowfish videos all day long, and uh, I didn't really care for the work. But I, and I had to interview a lot of people that I wasn't impressed by. I'm not a big I'm generally not really uh, impressed by celebrities. I've, I've met enough big ones that, you know, I don't really find most of them that fascinating to me. And um, and I was a terrible interviewer. You know, George Harrison came on the on, on once and they I was about to go to London to do a special with McCartney. And they asked me if I could delay my departure for a day because George Harrison was going to come in with Ravi Shankar. And I was the biggest George Harrison fan in the world. I was in my 20s and I, I honestly um his religion his you know I I loved his solo music his spiritual journey I was he, by far my favorite I knew every b-side every solo album I was the only 20 something in the 90s who knew every George Harrison solo album and he was coming with Ravi Shankar to promote this Chance of India record and we were going to just get our sound bite and he was going to leave and I was such a bad interviewer because I had like he was one of maybe five people that I just couldn't contain myself with. If you'd brought in Bob Dylan, I would have been the same way. Um, and I, I realized that if I asked him about the Beatles or John Lennon, he was going to get up and leave. I thought, what does he care about? And I knew he, he cares about spirituality. So instead I talked about music, but I, I talked about God. I talked about meditation. I talked about what happens when you die. The whole time my producer was in my earpiece saying, get him to talk about the Beatles. And I knew he, at one point I mentioned the Beatles and he shot me a look. You know, I knew he didn't want to do it. And I knew enough from being a fan. So I talked about death and life and, and you know, and I would I would relate it to his work. I'd say, but, but didn't you get that buzz for meditation when you played live? Don't you want to tour again? Don't you get that same meditation buzz on stage? Oh, no, this is thousands of times strong. Blah, blah. Uh, uh, and anyway, he left. And VH1 put it, you know, cut it down to a 22-minute special, took out all my spirituality stuff. They aired it. Nobody watched it. It was forgotten about. A couple years later, I was in Montreal for the comedy festival. George got diagnosed right after our taping, like the next month. I was in Montreal, and they called me and said, uh, George is going to go soon. We're recutting the special. Will you come down and uh, do some, some rap sports, some introductions for it? So I, I came down to shoot some new pieces. And they put in everything they cut out the first time. They put in, you know, all the stuff that was too boring. So the day he died, around the clock, VH1 aired this special no one had ever seen. Because <laughs> it wasn't interesting enough the first time. Of George Harrison and some 26-year-old talking about the soul and what happens when you die and what God is. To this day, I have people who walk up to me, and like men, and give me hugs in airports because they never saw anything anything intelligent about spirituality on tv you know spirituality you either have atheists or imbeciles you have non-believers or you have douchebags yelling at women outside clinics that's spirituality in, in tv so i realized if you can find out what your guest really cares about that they're never asked about that's it when when william shatner did my show in person for the first time on sirius xm i had a whole strategy <laughs> i went in and I, I just said to him you know we're seeing these director's cuts and special editions of so many movies. And I said, you know what I think they need to do? Paramount needs to give you whatever money you want to, to do all the CGI you need and put out a director's cut of Star Trek V 
um, uh, the, the final frontier. Star Trek V was the worst Star Trek movie ever made, and it's the only film William Shatner ever directed. It's a colossal flop. It's a terrible film. And it happened during a strike when Shatner couldn't get decent special effects, and, and he really was hobbled. So I went in there and said, I think Paramount needs to give you money so you can do a director's cut of that film and fix the special effects. Let me tell you, it was like I took the deepest part of his pain and healed him. And he became so delighted to talk about this and why the film went wrong and why it's not his fault. And after that, he opened up so much that I talked about his wife and her death in the swimming pool. And he told this beautiful story about how Leonard Nimoy tried to have an intervention for his wife and People Magazine picked it up and ran with it. Like the interview wound up making headlines because I began the interview talking about something that I knew the celebrity never got asked about and really would like to talk about. And that was really the only trick I ever learned other than, you know, listen and, and don't make it about you. Um, so, you know, I, I say this as someone who was a really bad interviewer and had to learn how to get better while he was already on the air. Now, how do you prep for your interview? Because I always, you know, I talk to a lot of younger podcasters. I've been doing this for 11 years and I don't, I never really write questions out. I, I do my research because you have to, you have to know what's going on. You know, I've seen interviews where people call someone by the wrong name. And I, if I'm not sure how to pronounce the name, I say, hey, how do I pronounce your name? Because before the show, they're not going to say, oh, you know. But how do you prepare? Do you sit there and do a lot of research? Because you have some guests, and as you said, you brought in something with Shatner that was different than most most interviewers would go right in and say this and that. How do you prepare for an interview when you're ready to go? I, I'm I'm not good enough to wing it, so I have to do a lot of prep. I, I It depends on who the guest is, obviously. When it's an author, I sort of have a black belt in making people believe I've really read their books. Um, Ralph Nader once taught me a little tip. If you read the first and last chapter, I mean the first and last paragraph of every chapter in a nonfiction book, you'll know the book. And it's true. If you if some if you have an author and they wrote a nonfiction book about history or politics, just read the first and last paragraph of every chapter and you can fake a whole interview from that. I learned that I had to uh I mean every interviewer has to learn how to do it to their liking. The great thing about Sirius XM is it's long form. I don't have commercial breaks every five minutes, like on TV. And I've never had to interview someone I didn't want to. I turned down so many people because I'm just not into celebrities. And it's when I was in TV, I had the experience many times of having to pretend to be interested in someone I really, whose work I really didn't respect. And that's a pretty awful feeling for a creative person. So, uh, you know, I, I do a ton of prep. And it varies. I mean, if it's a, you know, if it's if it's a historical figure, if it's a politician, if it's an author, it takes a lot of work. And the trick is to make them believe you've read their book. So it varies. Sometimes I mean, sometimes I'll I'll write out my questions. Sometimes I'll just post a bunch of talking points and build my questions off of those as we go. Now, you ever get nervous? Like, I remember, I know you, you had interviewed Ed Asner, and I interviewed him in L.A., and he came into the studio, and he, he's so imposing. His pants were pulled up, like, the middle of his chest. And it's Ed Asner. I mean, the guy's legendary. And you're sitting, I was sitting behind the glass, and I'm like, oh, you know, you're, you're worried because he's a gross little guy. But did, has anyone ever intimidated you? Not like bullying is intimidating, but you sit there. I mean, of course, George Harrison, of course, you love them, so you're going to do it. But has anyone just sat there and you went, yeah. holy shit, I'm interviewing such and such. Because you look at your list, and I'm like, man, it, it's amazing. I'm curious which ones you, you liked from. I'm not sure which list you've seen. Uh, we've been very lucky to get some great ones. You know, a lot of times uh, I'll know them already, so that makes it a lot easier. Or they'll 
follow me on Twitter or something. So, you know, if they follow me on Twitter, I'll figure, oh, they must like my politics. So it takes a lot of the edge off. I, but I, I, I get terrified all the time. Sure. Um, probably Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson was probably the one that scared me the most. He, uh, a few years ago, this movie, Love and Mercy, about his life came out and the Beach Boys and Brian was always just, you know, he's the insane genius, right? He's the insane genius behind all the Beach Boys uh, studio albums. Um, and uh, and he never leaves the house. And, and, you know, so this movie came out and I, I had to go see the film that morning. The morning the film the morning the film opened, he was coming in. So I went to like the earliest show in Manhattan, saw like a 9.30 a.m. screening. When I walked out, I had a panicked text from my producer saying, Brian Wilson's here and he's being terrible. He's only giving one word answers. And and uh, and he's already gone through everyone. We need you here now. The interview has to start now, not this afternoon, because he's ready to leave. So I had to run and catch a taxi and get to Midtown Manhattan as soon as I could. I run up the stairs, I run to the studio, and there's Brian Wilson sitting over the console by himself, mm-hmm. taking a nap. And I thought, how am I going to do this? He had a, I mean, he has a reputation of, you know, not so much being cruel and mercurial. He's just wired a certain way. So I had written like a hundred questions and I literally just did rapid fire, rapid fire. I, I just, I, you know, boom, 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 boom. If he gave me a one word answer, I would ask a follow up question. And um, if he if he kept on just being and I felt like to a large extent, he's got to be like Bob Dylan. He's got to be so bored. There's nothing you can ask him. He hasn't heard. There's no compliment you can pay him. He hasn't been paid. It's all boring to him. Um, so I talked about Pro Tools. I, I thought, OK, he's, he's wherever he is on the spectrum. Let's talk about tech. Let's talk about technology. Let's talk about how the technology he uses to produce music has evolved and what digital did for him. Like, let's go full geek because he never gets asked about it and it's the shit he's into. And that helped. And then he really began to talk more because he was, wasn't talking about personalities or meeting the Mansons. He was talking about his gadgets that he likes. And then I finally said to him, do you believe in God? And he said to me, I believe that God is music and the keyboard is my church. And in my mind, I just was like, that's it. We got our sound bite. We're done. I'll finish the interview. I got, I asked more shit to ask, but we, we have it. And, and that was it. Like I, I anticipated that it would be bad and I anticipated that I would be bad. So I prepared the shit out of it. So, uh, there'd be, it, it would never get dull and it worked. Well, Rick Adana told me you're a big music fan. And I think any, anyone who's a performer, we just love music. You're on the road. Who are some of the musicians, you know, you, I saw Springsteen on your list. I saw Townsend. I saw Noel Gallagher. Who are some where you just sat there and went, wow. You know, you sat there, because I'm a huge Springsteen fan, and I've been lucky to interview four members, past and present of the East Street Band. But I've never interviewed well, who have you had? I've had, had uh, a few of them on. I've had Steven, little Steven, uh, Nils Lofgren, Vinnie Mad Dog Lopez, and David Sanchez, the early guys and then huh? new ones. But who are, who are some of the interviews where you just, as a music lover, because when you interview someone, music just takes us back. Like, I interview a lot of 80s musicians. I interviewed uh, Andy McCluskey from OMD a few weeks ago. When I was in college, If You Leave was playing, and that song played from Pretty in Pink all the time. So it meant a lot to us because we were leaving, and it's not like social media. You couldn't get in touch. So that stuff always touches me a little bit. Who are some of the ones yeah. that have touched you in just because it relates to a musical memory of yours? Wow. 
Well, uh, I mean, Springsteen was for TV, you know, so it was like nothing. Like I did, I interviewed him for VH1, and so it was on camera, but it's nothing. You know, you can't ask anything real. You've got to just be cute little sound bites, and you know, it's, the worst part about that gig was I'd have producers who wanted me to ask these incredibly inane, stupid questions, and 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 then you know, and I'd want to ask smart, interesting questions, but the shit I find interesting isn't necessarily the stuff VH1 wants to put on the air which was the George Harrison story. Um, I, 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 I mean, it's a good question. I've had so many very moving ones with different musicians on the show. Uh, off the top of my head, I, I'd have to say that Robbie Robertson, because, um, you know, he did my show several times. I had met him a few times growing up over the years. I was someone who, as a teenager, became a fan of his solo stuff in the 80s with Daniel Lenoir and Ute 2 and Peter Gabriel. And then I, I was into his solo work before I knew the band. And so I sort of got into it backwards with him, which he always found very amusing. But he was one of the artists that, I mean, I just loved. You know, like there's Beatles and there's Dylan, you know, and you got the Stones. And then, like, who do you just love? And, I mean, I, I, I loved Pete Townsend. He did my show. I've, I've, I've loved, you know, I loved Rock Him. Uh, you know, we've had some great rappers on our show. But Robbie was someone who just meant so much to me and his music meant so much to me his stuff with the band his guitar playing for bob dylan those native american albums he did and so he did my show several times and uh, maybe it's just fresh in my mind because we just lost him last month uh but but he was someone that it was just positively emotional to be able to sit there with someone who had meant so much to me uh, in every decade of my life and his music meant so much to me um someone who was there when Dylan was getting booed for going electric, you know, he's just a part of history. And I, I just always found his life being the child of a, a Jewish gangster and a, and an indigenous woman on a reservation to be a, a fascinating story. So I'd say in the radio show, Robbie, Robbie meant a lot to me. That was very special. But, you know, you mentioned Mavis Staples. That was just like sitting down with history as well. Now, how do you, how do you come up when you're interviewing a politician? Because music, we sit there, it drives us. But when it's a politician, it's got to be a different guest. Because I've never interviewed a politician. So it's something where, and also if you go in knowing as a political commentator, they may be a little intimidated, they may be expecting something. But how do you prepare for a politician? Because half the time, they're telling you the truth. Half the time, you don't know what they're saying. How do you prepare for that? Because that fascinates me that you go from like a Mavis Staples to someone else. What, what is, what is yep. your prep for that? I know. I'm, I'm, I mean, our show has had from Bernie Sanders to Chris Christie, and um, most conservatives won't come on our show. We, we've had a few. George Will just did it last year for the first time. Um, but Chris Christie, it really impressed me that he would do it or that his people would let him do it. And with the case of Chris Christie, I knew that if I just went to attack him, it would be ugly and bad radio. Um, so I, I tried to do a lot of lightning round questions, you know. Um, like, uh, what's the most underrated Springsteen album? Is uh, North Jersey pizza better than South Jersey pizza? Who's a better role model for kids, Barack Obama or Donald Trump? <laughs> you know, like I would ask the, the bullshit little pop culture -y things. And then I would say, did, Me did Merrick Garland deserve an up or down vote for the Supreme Court? And, and Christie said he did. And Christie said Barack Obama was a better role model for children than Donald Trump. And this is back, you know, when Trump, when, when Christie was still in the Trump camp. So, you know, in that sense, for someone that I was in opposition to, I didn't want to attack him. I didn't want to fight him. Uh, but in many cases, I will. You know, if it's about religion, uh, you know, if you're if you're touting your your piety as a Christian, 
and you're pushing homophobia, you're pushing an abortion ban, you're trying to turn away refugees, and a lot of other shit that Jesus never, ever, ever mentioned, then I'll get pretty specific on what's in the goddamn Bible and what's just made up by Fox News. But, um, you know, with a political figure, you know, you know they're going to monologue. You know they're going to just go into their campaign speech, even if it's someone you like, right? Bernie's done my show a few times. You know what to expect with Bernie. So you try to find the questions that, they, like with celebrities, try to find the stuff they haven't been asked about because they'll be more interesting and they will open up to you more. And very often it's about something in their life that they care about that no one cares they care about. And that, that consistently is a great way to get someone who's done so many interviews, they can phone it in to really open up and be a real person. Um, you know, but like when I first went to Sirius XM, they asked me to give them my 10 dream guests. And I think I had Bush and Dick Cheney in the top five because I'd love to rake those fuckers over the coals and see, you know, ask them. But again, asking very simple questions. I, I, if I want to have a fight, I, I phrase everything in the context. Of, but that would but but wouldn't the conservative point of view be? That, but didn't Jesus say here that this, but 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 doesn't the Constitution say the, you know, not me fighting you because who cares about me? me asking questions in the form of an argument and that's i have found the the most um fluid way that you can have an argument in this kind of context without it getting mean and ugly talking about mean and ugly let's talk about twitter you're on twitter a lot and twitter there's so many people and you're i read your tweets you're, you're not an aggressive twitter you know there's people who are aggressive i know comics who are i mean you're not you're not mean. I mean, I'm a hater. I think I'm pretty. I think I'm pretty aggressive, but, but I don't not, hate people. But not in a mean way. I know some comics who are very right. Who, and they're the nicest yeah. people. And I think it's an act sometimes because their tweets or their posts. I go, how how do you post that? Like how what what comes in your because you might. But for you, how do you handle Twitter when when you get? Let me just say about that comics thing you just said because you made a really good point. Um, there's a lot of great right wing people who are comics. There's not a lot of great right-wing comedy because inherently you're defending a status quo. If you're, if you're taking the conservative point of view, it, you can't do it without punching down, right? Like you can either attack those in power or attack those not in power trying to change things. And it's the fundamental reason why you don't see a lot of conservative heroes in stories and a lot, a lot of conservative comedians because it comes – eventually you're down to punching down. So one of the rules I tried to make for myself was – I will only punch up at people in power or at mean people. You know, I, I, if you're just wrong about something, I, I, I don't want to be mean, but I will go after people in power and people who are cruel. And I, like I, I tried not to go after artists. You know, once in a while, if I have a really good Kevin Sorbo joke or something, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. But generally, uh, you know, even the Kardashians, well, they're not artists. But I, I try to not ever go after comics. I try to never go after artists. Um, you know, I'm friends with Roseanne. It breaks my heart what's happened there. I mean, I love her. I've been in her house. And and so, you know, I, I try to ease off of that. Um, and I, with you, I know a lot of great conservative people who are really nice, and then they go and do this mean shit. And it's petty and very often racist. And um, a lot of times comics get away with certain stuff that works when they're around their friends. And the Internet has given you a great big chat room where you can be around your friends and all that Anthony Cumia shithole stuff that, you know, I mean... I, you know, look, it's just a, it's, it, the internet gave racists a chance to feel like they weren't alone. And, um, and again, I don't mean bigots, I mean racists. And so, uh, Twitter is a place where, you know, meanness 
can be rewarded, but it goes hand in hand with cowardice. If, if you want to be anonymous, I get it. But if you're going to be an adult man and you hide your name and your face to go on the Internet and attack people who've never bothered you and without making points, just trying to hurt them, then you need to be called a coward because that's what your parents raised. Now, here's a question because we're talking about meanness and, you know, we try to shrug it off. But does anyone ever post anything in a response to you that's mean and it actually hurts you? That, you know, a lot of times you sit there and go, we just wanted to roll off. But does any, has anyone ever gotten to you where you're like, you've thought, man, you know what? That hurt me. And even, and no, it shouldn't have. No. Never? No. No, because you got to take a step back. I mean, I will say that Twitter has prepared me for public junior high school. Like, I'm, I'm ready to begin <laughs> junior high now because of my experience on Twitter. I wish to God I could have done Twitter before I went to junior high. Because it's sort of like... You know, it, it's sort of like you're you're um, you're the hot girl at the bar, and horrible men will uh, say horrible things to you because you're not interested in them. Horrible men think it's okay to berate women on the sidewalk for the crime of not being into them, right? And there's a lot of that on the internet. And um, I like to say, if you're going to fight hate, don't whine if you get a little on you. Just wash it off before it sticks, because hate makes you stupid. And hate is the enemy of funny. And if you allow yourself to hate other people, I guarantee you will be you will write stupid shit that you wish the world hadn't read. And I see progressives I really admire all the time getting in these flame wars with some Arkansas troll with 12 followers. And I'm like, dude, there's women here. Why are you doing this? Like, like, so I, I don't let myself get hurt, per se. But I have pointed out to people that you're trying to hurt people. Because I think sometimes they need to know that. I'm like, you're not here trying to make a point. You're here because you want to hurt people. And um, sometimes some people need that perspective. But I, I always say to them, I always say to them, I will never hate you back. Because I'm not good enough to hate anybody. So, you know, uh, and I've also had the experience of meeting some of these trolls in person. And they always like to hug me because to them it's a game. Twitter is a video game that some people let their subconscious play all day long. And uh, that can be very good. It can be very unhealthy. I'm very sad to see what has happened to that site. That whole site now is like, to me, just a, it's like a mob restaurant. Someone's burning down for the insurance money. <laughs> so I have one final question for you. You've had a great career. You've done a lot of different things. What is, what oh, is, Lord. no, you have. And you think about it. You've made a living doing what you said success earlier. You've done a lot of different avenues. What do you consider the highlight of your career? I mean, it could be one or two things, but when you look back and you go, man, I did this. Is there like one or two things that just stick out to you? Um, yeah, lots. I mean, I think uh, I did a solo show off Broadway for New York Theater Workshop um, about uh, my life and my parents that uh, I later toured and was up for a drama, drama league award that meant a lot to me. I found that doing 90 minutes in a theater it's great to make people laugh for 90 minutes, but if you can make them laugh for an hour 15 and then make them cry for the last 15, that's that's really it. Uh, I loved working for Current TV. Al Gore was a great boss, and they were doing some great programming. Um, and, and it was that that gig at Current TV, uh, which they, they hired based on my stand-up. And then, of course, the channel got axed before I could ever uh, have my own show, so I took over Keith Olbermann's old show and his staff. But... It was a great experience. Uh, it was the least amount of censorship uh, I've ever had. Not censorship, but the least amount of um, uh, meddling I've ever had in, in television. Um, 
I mean, I, I, I've learned from every bad job I've ever had. I've gotten, you know, when you're a comedian, you'll know this. Comics have a real gift, which is that horrible experiences make for great stories. And comedians are really able to turn pain into gold because it, I reached a point where I was no longer afraid of bad shit happening. If bad shit happened, now when bad things happen, I'm like, oh, I hope it gets really bad and I'll get a good five minutes out of this. So that on a spiritual level was was very good for me. Uh, I've had so many jobs I've been blessed with. I've met so many great artists. I've, you know, uh, I, I've had great joy acting in some films no one's ever seen. Um, I, I, you know, the George Harrison uh, thing on, on VH1 is the thing I get asked about the most. And I guess that's very special because it was an experience where at the time I was very embarrassed by it. Uh, I was very raw. I was a poor interviewer. And over the years, I have come to really appreciate the fact that uh, George Harrison stayed for four hours because I was so raw, because I wasn't polished. You know, you meet your idol and you're a moron and it's on TV. <laughs> uh, I was really depressed over it for a couple of years. But after he died and they recut the special and made it the spirituality and it's been on YouTube, it was like a lot of healing over the years from, you know, what I thought was my worst failure becoming something that wound up um, touching a lot of people. So, you know, I, I like to think my the highlight of my career hasn't happened yet. And uh, I'm working on a book right now and working on a, uh, another uh, solo show and going back on the road next year. So I, 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 I guess I've been really lucky, but I'm, I'm looking forward to what's still to come. Well, that's awesome. I want to thank you for taking the time. I'm glad we got to catch up and do this. Um, people can get in touch with you at your website and Twitter. Right? Yeah, johnfugelsang.com, or you can, if you have SiriusXM, we're on every night on Progress Channel 127. If you don't have SiriusXM, uh, we now have the John Fuglesang podcast, which is the highlights of last night's SiriusXM show. It took years of cajoling for SiriusXM to let us do this, but we now have a daily podcast that has like the celebrities and, and best interviews and, uh, and rants and riffs of last night's show. So check that out wherever you download your fine podcast. So people, check it out. Also go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 970 episodes. You can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Also go to YouTube. Go look at the Coop Tank. I interview a roundtable of some of the Philadelphia area's uh, top business people. We have a great discussion about networking the business and all the good things. So check it all out. Check out John. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you.